Being expert neither in the field of science nor of religion, we are relieved of the responsibility of discussing a theme whose treatment has suffered from everything but neglect. It is possible, however, to treat the well-worn problem of science versus religion in all its familiar aspects purely as history, without ever leaving the ancient world. For not only were the people of late antiquity even more modern and sophisticated than those of our own, but they thought of themselves as being very scientific, and they were. Long before and after Lucretius, the intellectuals insisted on a religious belief that would square exactly with everyday experience, a thoroughly common sense and practical religion, a scientific religion, in which there was no place for any nonsense about the supernatural, that is, for anything that lay beyond their own immediate experience. The fashionable religion of the educated classes was a sort of social gospel. Its attitude to the universe was that of Nilad Mirari, don't get worked up over anything. The only problems worth troubling about were the social problem of getting along together and the individual problem of making money and enjoying life as much as possible. All the rest was old wives' tales. Such a philosophy of life may be very well in its way, but let us not call it religion. Not long ago, they flourished a Soviet poet, Shershenyevich, who demanded in the name of modernity or futurity the liberation of words from the burden of meaning. Free the words from their sense and contents, he cried, which have stuck like chewed paper about the word's pure image. There is not and should not be any sense or contents in art. To attribute meaning to words is a stuffy, quaint, old-fashioned, and bourgeois prejudice, yet poor Shershenyevich could not, Shershenyevich, excuse me, could not preach his doctrine of liberating all words from any meaning except by using words that still had meaning. Just so, there are ministers who would give us religion freed from the burden of the supernatural, liberated from any old-fashioned involvements with anything beyond our everyday experience. And this doctrine of religion, with religion left out, they can convey only by using a religious vocabulary, which taken in the denatured sense in which they want it to be taken would have no meaning at all. Like Shershenyevich, they appeal for the abandonment of the only thing that gives their appeal any force. Nothing has been more often defined than religion, and after all, philosophy, ethics, aesthetics, and sentimentality are accounted for and claimed by their proper practitioners. The irreducible religious element of religion remains the concern with things which are not of this world. The Bartian School, according to Mr. Rufus Jones, insists that God must be an absolute other. We belittle him and drag him down from his true being, they say, when we say anything about him in terms of our poor, thin, finite selves. There is nothing in us or about us or through us which he can be interpreted. No piling up of our empty zeros will ever start on the road to infinity. Earth had no clue to offer. History had no word to say that gives any light on the exalted theme of God. We belong in the order of nature, and he is utterly supernatural. That's Mr. Jones quoting the Bartians. Now, no one will accuse Mr. Jones of being stuffy or fundamentalist. None of your super supernatural religion for him. Yet this attitude of the Bartians is too much even for him to take. It might be all perfectly true, he tells us, but true or not, it cannot possibly be called Christian or religion. If nothing of the divine nature can be expressed in the human, he retorts, then the incarnation of God in Christ has no real meaning or significance, and nothing that we say about God is anything more than a flatus vocus, an empty breath of sound. Religion once more withdraws from earth and becomes an irrationality, a mere surd, and is therefore to be left behind." End of quote. Jones sees the folly of the whole thing when it is carried to its logical conclusions. But has he any right to take Bart to task simply for taking his own liberal doctrine further than he himself is willing to go? 
Barth has put God out of the reckoning. In the name of the Bible and religion, we cannot do that, says Jones. Yet he and the whole liberal school have long since struck the prophets and the miracles and the devil from the record and made of the resurrection a mere flatus vocus, though the Bible insists on these things just as emphatically as it does on the incarnation. Mr. Jones wants to keep an open mind up to a point. He chuckles and chides at those quaint reactionaries who won't carry open-mindedness quite as far as he thinks it should be carried, but he rolls a scandalized eye and clucks a warning tongue at those foolish radicals who would carry it further than that. The whole question turns out to be not whether one's going to be open-minded or not. Jones himself is not open-minded in the matter of the Incarnation. The Bardians themselves have their minds completely made up on the unsearchability of God. The question is the point at which to draw the line, and even in the case of these two extreme liberals, one can't help noting that where each man is strong and positive is precisely the area in which he has made up his mind, that is, where he is not open-minded. Is an open mind then a negative thing, an empty mind? It is, unless it's a searching mind. An oyster has few prejudices. In the field of astronomy, we may safely say it has none. Are we then to congratulate the oyster for his open-mindedness? A first-rate and very broad-minded scientist, J.B.S. Haldane, defines prejudice as an opinion held without examining the evidence. Prejudice doesn't consist in having made up one's mind, in defending an opinion with fervor and determination, as too many liberals seem to think. It consists in forming an opinion before all the evidence has been considered. This means that freedom from prejudice, whether in the field of science or any other field, requires a tremendous lot of work. One cannot be unprejudiced without constant and laborious study of evidence. The open mind must be a searching mind. The person who claims allegiance to science in his thinking or who is an advocate of the open mind has let himself in for endless toil and trouble. But what has happened? Those who have called themselves liberals in religion have accepted science with open arms precisely because they believe that excuses them from any toil at all. For them to have an open mind means to accept without question and without any personal examination of evidence whatever the prevailing opinions of the experts prescribe. This is what Haldane calls prejudice. Evolution has hailed, uh, was hailed as the new gospel, not because it raised new questions or spurred some men to new researches, but because for the man in the street and the lazy student, as well as for the people who wrote books for them, it meant the end of all searching and the end of all doubt. Here was the answer to everything and no open mind nonsense about it. I recently reviewed a two-volume work on ancient history, in which the author had obviously not bothered to read more than a fraction of his sources. Why should he bother? By the evolutionary rule of thumb, he could reconstruct the whole broad course of history with confidence and ease, oblivious to the disquieting fact that the documents, had he taken the trouble to read them, would have told a very different story. Evolution was the conclusion on which he based his facts. The doctrine, however useful in other fields, has had a crippling, even a paralyzing effect on humanistic studies where its ready-made answers to everything have spared the students the pains and denied them the experience of finding out for themselves what the texts actually say. But especially in the field of religion this has been so. The actual study of evidence constantly rebuffs the evolutionary prejudices of the scholars who feel nonetheless that they can't do without this precious time and thought saver. It is a well-known law of history of liturgy, for example, that the development has led from pluriformity to uniformity and not the reverse. That's a quotation from a famous authority. Again, scholars have searched long and in vain for an urtext, a pure, simple original to the Septuagint. Unaware, Paul Colley points out, that the standard text of a translation is always found at the end of the development, never at the beginning, where one would expect it. Any college student can tell you that the organization of the Christian church must have passed from primitive, loosely coordinated beginnings to an increasingly integrated and effective system. If the evidence makes the mistake of proving the opposite, the evidence must be dealt with. 
Accordingly, to quote Sherman, every letter of Paul in which such a fixed organization of the church is implied is in spite of its linguistic affinity to other letters which are recognized as genuine and in spite of the close identity of its contents and thought with theirs, is condemned without mercy and overwhelmed with charges of interpolation." End of quote. This is not a rare but a typical example of the way the school of scientific scholarship so-called operates. As another example, the unfolding pattern of history requires the idea of the Messiah shall have first arisen in Israel after the exile. But there are some significant pre-exilic passages in the Old Testament that refer to the Messiah. What do the scholars do with these? They simply declare them to be interpolations, and then they remove the offensive things from the text. The result is a reformed text, which brilliantly confirms the theory on which it was reformed. They produce a new text, that is, carefully tailored to their theory, and then they point to that text as proof that the theory is correct. Incredible as it may seem, this cheap and easy circular method became the standard procedure and the indispensable tool of the higher critics, especially the German school, who operated on the principle that while to ignore evidence is a sign of prejudice, to alter and adjust it to fit one's preconception is a mark of brilliance and ingenuity. This may be the result of trying to apply scientific method in an area where judgments must always remain largely subjective. And yet one wonders when one contemplates the behavior of scientists too. Last November, at a meeting of the Geological Society of London, the famous Piltdown Man was shown to be a hoax, as we all know now. It was not only a hoax, however, we are now told, but it was, a much, but it was an extremely clumsy hoax. So clumsy that it's hard to see how it ever fooled anybody, according to a recent report. Only one thing can explain the solemn acceptance and high honors accorded this battered skull by the highest authorities for over half a century, and that is an overpowering desire, a fierce determination to accept as genuine whatever looked promising in an area where evidence was badly needed. The news has now leaked out that the November meeting, and I'm quoting from the news dispatch, broke up into a series of fistfights. So strong was the feeling on both sides of the question. The fracas resulted in the expulsion of several members of the dignified scientific body. End of quote. Strong feeling, says the dispatch. It was wishful thinking that saw priceless evidence in the Piltdown skull and then defended it with a passion that did not draw the line at bloody noses and black eyes. Where is the cool, impartial, objective detachment which we have been taught is the badge and authority of science? Well, there's nothing wrong in human beings behaving like human beings, unless, of course, one claims, as these men do, to have risen above that sort of thing. I recall to mind certain professors of natural science who could not give a lecture without taking pot shots at foolish and gullible people who accepted things on faith. These men with monotonous persistence fire millions of rounds at the opposition, but when the opposition proposes to present a few of their duds for our inspection, they instantly appeal to our humanity and insist that it is not sporting to advertise the chinks in their armor. Well, modern liberalism, like modern education, goes on the theory that scientific attitude can become the possession of every man, woman, and child in the democracy. Nothing can be further from the truth. The only way you can get the scientific attitude, scientists tell me, is to be a scientist. The only way one can know what mathematics is about, according to Courant and Robbins, is actually to work the problems. Lots of problems, hard problems in mathematics. One can't acquire the attitudes of a painter or a teacher or a musician or a zoologist or a tap dancer without actually doing work in those fields. A really scientific attitude cannot be imparted by lectures about it or pocketbooks or popular articles that glamorize it or survey courses that play with it. We can embrace science only as the masses. Everybody can embrace science only as they embrace religion in name only. The real enemy science of science is the glib and superficial lip service to science that goes under the name of liberalism, and the same holds true for religion. 
There is no substance to the easy and sentimental religion of man by which the human race was expected to lift itself to infinite heights by a gentle tugging at its own bootstraps. The mathematician Gadel has demonstrated, or at least proposes to demonstrate, that no logical, this is a quotation, that no logical system can ever prove that it itself is a perfect system in the sense that it may not contain concealed self-contradictions. This means that the human intellect can never be sure of itself. It is not a tool capable of unlimited perfectibility, as is so often imagined, end of quote. What is more, even that ultimate rock of refuge, common sense, has become a rapidly melting ice flow. The sort of phenomenon which quantum theory is concerned, writes Professor Bridgman, um, teach the same lesson as relativity theory, namely that the world is not constructed according to principles of common sense. End of that quote. Actually, he reminds us, we acquire our perceptual abilities only by arduous practice, yet we take our space and time with deadly seriousness. Perhaps when we learn to take them less seriously, we will not be so bedeviled by the logical contradictions about the beginning or the end of time or the boundaries of space. End of quote from Bridgman. It's time we came to the moral of our little talk, the religious part of it. Schoolmen, ancient, medieval, and modern, have persisted in proclaiming to the world that there is a side and a part from that knowledge which has come to the human race by revelation and which is an object of religious faith, another type of knowledge. Real, tangible, solid, absolute, perfectly provable knowledge. The knowledge, according to the prevailing taste of the century, of philosophy, science, or common sense. The exponents of this knowledge, we are told, are impartial and detached in their searches and their conclusions. I've met many students who've been convinced that anyone who experiences any doubt regarding the scripture has only to remove his troubled mind from old legends and dubious reports to realms of clear light and absolute certainty where doubt does not exist. Significantly enough, this gospel of hope is almost never preached by the scientists, but enjoys its greatest vogue in departments of humanities and social sciences. What the true scientists of our day are telling us, as they've told us before, is that no such realm and no such intellectual asperities is known to them. One never knows which of our most cherished and established scientific beliefs may be next to go by the board. A brief illustration may be in order. If there's anything at all on which the overwhelming consensus of New Testament scholarship claims to have reached the highest certitude, it is the nature of the Gospel of John, a relatively late production, we are told, that shows clear and unmistakable marks of Hellenistic influence. Professor Albright reminds us that the term rabbi used by John was seen to be a hopeless anachronism, that the personal names in the Gospel of John were obviously fictitious and had been chosen for their specific purposes, that John's inaccurate topography showed his ignorance of the local setting in the time of Christ and so forth. Yet the discoveries of just the last few years, Albright observes, have shown that the experts were completely wrong on all these points. Most recently, the study of the Dead Sea Scrolls shows us Quote that John, quoting from another authority, that John, so far from being the creation of Hellenistic Christianity, has exceedingly close ties with sectarian Judaism and may prove to be the most Jewish of the Gospels. Let us not be hard on the specialists. How could they be expected to have known what lay hidden in the sand? But that's just another way of asking how could they ever be expected to know the answers? Until the final returns are in, no one is in a position to make final pronouncements. And as long as science continues to progress, the final returns will remain at the other end of a future of wonders and surprises. In the world of things, we must forever keep an open mind because we simply don't know the answers. But we're not claiming that because science doesn't have the ultimate answers, religion does have them. What we do claim is that the words of the prophet cannot be held to the tentative and defective tests that men have devised for them. Science, philosophy, and common sense all have a right to their day in court. 
But the last word does not lie with them. Every time in their wisdom, and it has often happened, men have come forth with the last word, other words have promptly followed. The last word is a testimony of the gospel that comes only by direct revelation. The Father in heaven speaks it, and if it were in perfect agreement with the science of today, it would surely be out of line with the science of tomorrow. Let us not therefore seek to hold the Lord to the learned opinions of the moment when he speaks the language of eternity.